Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, girl. You're great. Do you know that? You're great. She said, yeah. You know what? I know Angel, too, and I knew that was going to be a resounding yes as I asked that question. <clears throat> well, hello, Mosaic. How are you? Good. Uh, for those of you that are newer, my name is Dan Sadler. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we get to finish up our series called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by talking about celebration and joy. Uh, clinical psychologists break down our level of happiness with the following equation. This is a real thing. You're going to see the equation. H equals S plus C plus V. Uh, clinical psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who wrote the book The Happiness Project, which is ironic because his last name is Haidt, uh, he explains that formula this way. He says, H, the level of our happiness, equates to S, our biological set point, plus C, external conditions, plus V, voluntary activities that we choose to implement in our lives. Now, these factors obviously don't boil down to equal parts of the pie. And so we dig a little deeper. Sonia Loya Brameshi, a professor at University of Cal who lives in the Bay Area, after her findings on an extensive research project, said this, 50% of our happiness is genetic. It has to do with our family history. About 40% of it comes from what we think and what we do, our minds, our bodies, and what we choose to do with those. And about 10% come from our external circumstances. Now, data is meant to be interpreted, and one of the ways we could interpret this is that some of us are just screwed. Like, that's, you know, it's just one of those things where we could look at it and go, thank you, Grandpa, for being depressed. Now I have it too. Um, but, she writes, that is not what we should be focused on. Instead, she goes on in her findings to claim that 40% is no small percentage. The 40% that has to do with what we think and what we do is sizable. And so she continues in her findings saying, although you might find it hard to believe, regardless of where you live, whether the East Coast or the West, Regardless of what you look like or what type of Botox you've decided to infuse into your face, regardless of what you drive, whether it be a Benz or a pickup, your chances of becoming happier are pretty much the same. The study went on to cause all sorts of debate and confusion in the science and psychology domain, but as far as we can tell, based on all the feedback, most agree that only a small percentage of our happiness is set for us. And that much more of it has to do with certain things that we can choose. Now, I understand in the context of clinical psychology and mental illness like depression and anxiety, it's important to be sensitive to this topic. And so I, I hope to do that throughout this. But in essence, what she's saying is that we can choose joy. That there's agency in this for us. Now, I read that as a cynic and skeptic and think, yeah, great, but you live in the Bay Area. Like where it is, it is nice out 300 days a year, like easy for you to choose joy. You move to Jersey and choose joy and then we'll talk, right? 
Like you, you get priced out of your New York City neighborhood and then I'm going to read your research paper. But until then, I mean, here's some of the stuff that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Here's some of the stuff that I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Over the past year in my family's life, there have been multiple families connected to us who have lost little babies. There have been multiple funerals, many of them sudden, multiple marriages on the brink of ending, people losing their visa sponsorship, cancer. We've all been ghosted at least two or three times in the past year by somebody here in New York City. Job loss. It's just what we deal with. It's reality. On top of that, there's legitimate mental illness. Approximately 8% of New York adults experience symptoms of depression each year. Major depressive disorder is the single greatest source of disability right now in the city we call home. And at any given time, over half a million New York adults are dealing with depression. And yet less than 40% report receiving care for it. Anxiety disorder is often linked to it. It's also on the rise. And so we can talk about joy all day long, but half the year it seems like it's getting dark at 4 p.m., which for me is not a good thing. All right? Then on top of that, it's densely populated. And so we deal with all of our individual sadness and our hardness and our brokenness and our anxiety. But then we're dealing with others as well because there is no private space and people have private moments in public space. And so we get to watch everybody else deal with their brokenness and their bankruptcy and their hurt and their breakups as well. Which means that in New York City, we're not just faced with our own sadness and anger and anxiety, but we're dealing with others at a very high rate. And so it just feels overwhelming. It's why many outside of the city look at the city as the city of cynicism. And one of my mentors says, because we live in such a densely populated city... We are dealing with the beauty of people on a whole different level than the rest of the country, but we're also dealing with people's brokenness on an exponential level. And yet, and yet, scripturally, a mark of God's existence and work in you and in me is our level of joy. One of the ways that the world knows that God's spirit is actually alive and is actually working and is actually accessible to us is through the degree of joy that we're experiencing. It's why Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In a city of cynicism, in a cultural moment that's often plagued by sadness, and conflict around the world, what does it look like to be a people marked by joy because that potentially is the best testimony to people that God's spirit is alive and working and transforming and renewing all things. And so that's the question we ask. Without escaping reality, how do we move towards happiness and joy? And this is where Paul begins to pen this letter to the church in Philippi saying, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present those requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Now, the word joy there, and it's an original language, uh, karate, sounds a little bit like karate, In its original language, it means to joy, like verb, 
to celebrate. 90% of the time in the scripture, it's used in a very communal way, in a plural way. It's a command to joy as a people, to celebrate as a people. And three chapters into this letter written by Paul, he's writing, I want to make sure you understand context here, he's writing to a grumbling, dysfunctional, disunified, cynical little church in Philippi. And it's on the back of these three chapters that he actually gives this, these two staccato commands of people, go joy. Go joy. Now, most of us, including myself, when we think about joy, we think about it as a passive thing. I think about people who encounter all the external circumstances of life that are real hard, and for whatever reason, they're just not like me, and they take it all with a big old smile, and it's all puppies and rainbows, and I'm like, I want to smack you. But, but that, that just seems like a passive thing for me when I see somebody who's joyful. But what Paul is saying is that's not the case. This word joy in its original language is one of action. It's one of agency. It's one of choice. It's why one of my favorite authors and theologians, Henri Nouwen, once said, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing joy every single day. There's agency here for us. And there's agency here for us, not by trying harder and just putting a false pseudo smile on our face or pretending that the, the real stuff doesn't exist, but it's a joy that comes when we train hard. For the past four or five weeks, we've been talking about different practices that have to be central to the Christian faith if we're going to embed some of these spiritual truths into our muscle memory, which brings us to the practice of celebration. The practice of celebration as a Christian is supposed to be central. And all of our anxiety and all of our fear and all of our worry, regardless of what culture you're a part of, whether it's one of charisma and, and celebration or one that's just kind of steady and quiet, we're meant to celebrate. That's why C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. We are called to be ambassadors, diplomat to our context here and now, taking this serious celebration of heaven and embedding it in this culture and this city. And so how do we practice and celebrate joy? Well, first, we practice celebration by being attentive to the source of joy. Rejoice, Paul says, and the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all. And then he ends this first part of the scripture with a very important phrase, the Lord is near. I've said this before to you, I'm going to say it again. The life of the kingdom of God is all about having eyes and ears. This is why Jesus ends so many of his teachings with those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's about an attentiveness to a God that is already present and to a God that is already working, meaning he is here right now in this moment. And so Paul and his reminder to the church in Philippi and to us is that the Lord is present and is here right now. And that's an important reminder. The question becomes why? Well, because it's very rare to live in non-clinical anxiety when you're attentive to God's presence. It's very hard to live in fear or anxiety or sadness, non-clinical, when you're attentive to God's presence. What do I mean by this? Well, here's what I mean. For me and for most of you, throughout the day, 
there is often an underlying hum of anxiety. It stays very subtle, it stays very quiet, but it consumes the majority of our lives. The hum is there as I run from one appointment to another. It's there. If I pay attention to it, it's there. The hum is there as one of my children make a poor choice and another one decides that homework all of a sudden is an option. And I start feeling like I'm losing control of things, which is a big deal because if I lose control of six of them, it's full-on revolt. The hum is there as I wait on test results or simply surf the net and have way too many windows open. That hum is there. And the problem is that often I'm not attentive to that hum. Even though it's messing with my neurological connections, even though it's forming a physical response in the pit of my stomach, even though it's dictating levels of adrenaline, I'm just not attentive to it. It's there, but I'm not attentive to it. Almost always in these stretches throughout the day, I'm also inattentive to another thing. Outside of just being inattentive to the thing, the fear that's driving that anxiety, I'm also inattentive inattentive to the very presence of God. I'm not awake to what he's doing. I'm not awake to what God is saying. I'm not awake to what God is actually feeling about me. And yet this is why the Christian worldview is so very different than every other worldview. In almost every other religious worldview, God is somewhere out there somewhere waiting for us to reach up, be smart enough, perform well enough, make the appropriate sacrifices. Yet what we know about the Christian worldview is it's, it's different. It's respectfully different. God isn't somewhere out there. God has said, I want you to know exactly what I'm like. And so he comes to us in the form of Jesus. He shows us exactly what he values, exactly what he cares about. He then gives his life, is killed by us in our worst moments, is killed by us. And then says, I'm not done with you. My love for you is more powerful, more deep, more high than you would have ever imagined, is raised from the dead, ascends to heaven. And if this is all true, then it means that his spirit is poured out in all of you in a way where God is then present with us and working. And this matters. It's why Paul follows the staccato man to rejoice with the Lord is near. He's giving you an antidote to your anxiety. What do I mean? Well, what we find throughout the gospel account is that God is love. Especially if we look to Jesus. He's love. If God is like Jesus, then God is the source of love and the source of joy. And what we're told throughout the scripture and what I believe to my toes is that God's perfect love drives out all what? Fear. Fear. That's really good, guys. It's like a quarter of you. I don't think you've ever responded to me like that before. God's love drives out fear, which means that, that they don't coexist together. There's an inverse relationship between God's presence and fear. And so when we're attentive to the presence of God, who is the source of joy, that underlying hum of anxiety begins to diminish. But it takes eyes. And it takes ears. It takes contemplation and reflection. And this is part of the problem because the faster we become as people, the less we reflect and the less we contemplate. And the worse our ears and our eyes and our minds become. But if we can actually become attentive, we wake up to God's presence and anxiety, at least non-clinical anxiety, cannot live there. Paul was one of the most impactful church starters, leaders, and influencers in the history of the Christian church, but he was also the most contemplative. 
You see it as he pens all of these letters, reflecting and contemplating on God's love for him in the midst of his brokenness. New Yorkers want to be activists. They're usually just really bad at it because they rarely contemplate. Too fast. We're too fast. And so just a real quick action step for us as a church community. One, if you can implement five to ten minutes of journaling on a daily basis, just five, seriously, five minutes of going, here's what I did over the past 24 hours. Here's where I sensed God working. Here's where I sensed God's presence. Here's what I'm doing over the next 24 hours and where I want to be awake to his presence. It changes everything. The mark of the Christian is joy. The practice of the Christian is celebration. And we practice celebration first and foremost through being attentive to the source of that joy. But secondly, we practice celebration by being honest about reality. Now, it's one thing to be attentive. It's another thing to be honest. Paul begins with the Lord's presence because we rarely live in untruth. I want you to hear this. We rarely live in sin when we are present to God's presence. Those two things usually don't go hand in hand. But then Paul moves into the importance of being honest with God through prayer. Where he says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. He's going, talk to God. Listen to God. Engage with God. There is a lot of people that like to declare their belief in God, but few want to actually engage in honesty with a God if a God actually exists. So what do I mean by that? Well, there was a stretch earlier this fall where I was just in a funk. Like it was actually the first time in my life where I was asking the question, could this actually be clinical depression? Like knowing my family's history, I was like this, I've lost some ambition here. I'm highly irritable with, with Amanda, with the kids. I'm tired. Like, just, I was asking the question for the first time. And there would be these days where I just felt like I was going through the motions of, of caring. Motivation behind it wasn't great. I really was like, whatever. Now, there would be these moments early in the morning, though, in that time period, where I would acknowledge the frustration, and I would acknowledge the apathy. I would be attentive to it. I would ask myself, Right? Why, why is that there? And then I would answer myself, whether it be verbally or in my head, I would answer myself, well, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling frustrated because so-and-so just up and left to Jersey without telling anybody. Or I'm, I'm frustrated because me and Amanda are trying to figure out our differentiating roles and what works and what doesn't, and it just doesn't feel like it's working. And then I would kind of pause in my frustration. I would rhyme myself with some truth. Like, listen, Dan, like, God is real. And God loves me whether or not I'm succeeding. I would remind myself that, that I'm not defined by energy or charisma, luckily because I didn't have any in that season. And I would almost hope, this is so important, I would almost hope that simply remembering truth would change something for me. But there is a difference between stating the truth and interacting with the truth who in the Christian worldview is a person. One of my mentors says, real truth will always move you from something you understand to something or someone you stand under. And see, for the Christian church, Christian's truth is not just a set of principles. Truth is a person. We are called to have a transformative, interactive relationship with truth who is a person. It is Jesus. So I want you to actually visualize the absurdity of this. What, what do you think would happen if I walked around my apartment 
reminding myself about the awesomeness of my wife. I would just say it out loud, right? She's, she's great. I list all the facts. She's tall. She's beautiful. Good kisser. She's fiery with her kids. She's passionate with her, her vocation. She's a bit intense sometimes. And I just recited it over and over. And then I would recite it to my kids. And I would tell my kids. I just wouldn't talk to her. I wouldn't eat with her. Wouldn't touch her. Wouldn't listen to her. I mean, could you imagine if I just walked around my apartment talking to myself, talking to you about her, talking to my children about her, just never talking to her? Be a couple implications, right? One, it wouldn't change me because information does not equate to transformation. That's important. But two, she would be sitting there heartbroken that I told myself and everyone else about her factually without ever dealing with her experientially. This is very important. And this is what we do when we remind ourselves about the truth, hear about the truth, go to a church to talk about the truth, but never interact with the truth who is a person. When we never stop in our anxiety and in our sadness to pray and actually say with guts, God, I'm sad about this. I'm fearful I might not get this job. I'm worried this person doesn't like me. And God, you say that you are love and that I don't have to fear, that you care about every hair on my head and all those good religious texts that I've memorized. But I'm not sure I believe that, God. I want to, but I'm not sure I believe that. God, would you give me peace? When we, when we, when we, don't come and interact with the truth that way. We don't yield to the spirit of God that can transform us. We don't say yes to experiencing God. And many of us believe it. We just never act with God like this. Which is why Paul doesn't just say, be honest about the source of joy and attentive to it. Paul says, interact with the source of joy and be honest in your anxiety. But in every situation, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Have an interactive relationship with him. Even in your madness, your bitterness, brokenness, your frustration with him, your skepticism and doubt, he can take it all. And if he can't, you don't want that God anyways. The mark of the Christian is joy. The practice of the Christian is celebration. And we begin the practice of celebration through honesty and through attentiveness. But last, there must be embodiment. I've used this word a lot lately. We practice celebration by embodying trust in that source of joy who is Jesus. I think those of you that have been around a bit now know that that we are about transformation. I could care less about you getting more and more information. I want you to be changed. I want to be changed. Otherwise, I don't know why we're gathering here. This is stupid. Right? We're about transformation. But transformation comes with faith, and faith comes with dependency upon the truth who is Jesus. And so I know that a lot of you come from backgrounds that say, if you believe, you're good. If you believe, you're going to heaven. You believe, whatever. But, but I'm going to say this. It might sound heretical. It's okay. We can't just believe because we're actually physical human beings who physically must show dependence upon Christ with our bodies because we're physical human beings. I can, I've used this illustration before. I can say all day long that I believe that their chair will hold me up, but until I walk my little body over there and sit down, I am not showing embodied trust in that chair. I'm a physical human being. Which means we have to embody trust in Jesus, which means we actually have to throw parties, y'all. 
Here's the takeaway for today. You got to throw parties. This is, this, is our, this is our declaration of faith and trust in the truth who is Jesus, the source of joy, that in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of cancer, in the middle of not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, we still celebrate. And we don't celebrate pretending that none of that happens, detaching from the world. That's more kind of Eastern religions and some of those things over there. That's not what we're doing. We're saying that the Spirit of God in us gives us the ability to stay honest and engage with reality and still celebrate because the God of love, most seen in Jesus, is with us and for us now. Faith is showing embodied trust to Jesus in the arenas where cynicism and sadness and hopelessness usually thrive. And so knowing that all of that stuff often dictates the culture of New York City, we need to throw parties in New York City. This is our arena. Now, to land this thing, when I preach, I like to move you, or at least I try, and I know I don't always based on certain people that sleep, but I want to move you. Why are you laughing back there? That was my wife. I, I want to move you. I, I, because if God is who he says he is, and God is most visibly seen in Jesus, this is good news. It means that God is not some demanding judge or some weird doting grandfather, some distant deity. He's like Jesus. He's with us. He's for us. He empathizes with us. He's gone before us on our behalf. This is good news. That should move us. And it doesn't matter how intellectually elite you are. It doesn't matter if you're a diplomat or a researcher. It doesn't matter. At some point, it should move you. If it doesn't move you, you might want to check your pulse or your beliefs, one of the two. And so I'm always thinking through, what's the best story that I can tell at the end of a sermon to move you? But then I realized, if we actually want to live sacramentally in the world, then we need to be able to celebrate not just on big milestones and in epic scenarios when we're having anniversaries or birthdays or big vocational milestones. We need to actually be able to learn what it looks like to celebrate as a people marked by joy on a daily basis in the mundane, in the routine. So just a few very simple examples to finish our time. Uh, This past Tuesday was known as Fat Tuesday, or Mardi Gras, or Carnival, a bunch of different names. Historically, within the church and a bunch of different traditions of the Christian church, it's known as the day right before what season? Anyone know? Lent. Lent. The two good Catholics up front, like, Lent! (laughs) I see you. But it's Lent. It's the beginning of Lent. And Lent is this process of what, what theologians would call kenosis, the emptying of ourselves out to make space for God. We practice making space for more of God's, or awareness of God's presence. And so the Tuesday before Lent, we celebrate. We celebrate. We, we, we're saying we fully engage. But Fat Tuesday is also a Tuesday. And I don't know about you, but I got a lot to do on Tuesdays. My kids have homework on Tuesdays. I have meetings on Tuesdays, and I have early meetings on Wednesday mornings. And so even this past week, everything in me was like, you know what, I just want to go home. I want to eat dinner, and then I want to lock myself in my bedroom away from my six children and just finish the day. And then there was this part of me, but, but this is an excuse to celebrate. 
This is like a historical Christian excuse to have a little party. So that's what some of us did in this room. Shout out an email, grab some good food, and we sat there. And we were present together. And we laughed together. And many of you ate together a lot. You ate a lot. You took down a serious amount of lasagna, those of you that were there. But we celebrate on a Tuesday or African History Month where we don't pretend in the church like racism and systemic sin is no more. We don't pretend like for the African American you are on an equal playing field as white folks. But we choose to celebrate in the midst of it. And so even here, I got to see it via video, but a group of you Africans, African Americans, dressed up in traditional garb, sang, danced. We didn't need to do that. You didn't need to do that. But you celebrate because you're marked by joy. And the Christian practice is to celebrate or to end dance parties. Dance parties are good. About every other week, our family will get ready for bed, and our six kids will go downstairs and get ready for bed and brush their teeth, or at least they say they do. I know half of them don't brush their teeth. Dirty kids. I love them. They're dirt balls. They come upstairs, and we sit around the couch, and then Amanda and I just throw on some dance music, and we let them go. They are now 16 and 13 and 12 and 10 and 8 and 4. And it is usually my 8-year-old and my 4-year-old that are not too cool at this point. But they get it started. And then as good catalysts, by the next 10 minutes, everybody's in there doing the robot. And we're bad dancers. All of us. White and the black ones are all bad. I think we rubbed off on our adopted children. But we just dance. And we dance because in the midst of the day, my kids are imperfect and my parenting is way more imperfect than my kids are imperfect. And there's got to be some moment in the day where we just kind of put all of the conditions to the side and go, we are going to reflect the unconditional love of the Father that sings over us. In the midst of all the times we've stopped short and settled for less, he sings over us. It's Zephaniah 3 that says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And so, Mosaic, I, I just want you to hear this, and I want you to hear it clearly. God loves you. He sees you. In Jesus, he has empathized with you fully. And he sings over you in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of your frustration, in the midst of your failures and flaws. He sings over longing for you to become a people that will just dance once in a while. Because the Christian is marked by joy and is a practicer, a practicing participant in celebration. It is the best testimony that the Spirit of God is alive And is renewing all things. And so let me pray for us.